The earth is so small. It affected me. I could not get over the notion that in such a small planet, with such a small ribbon of life, so much goes on. It's as if the whole place is sacred. The Interplanetary Podcast. The exploration of space for the benefit of all mankind. Your hosts here in London, Matthew Russell and Jamie Franklin. Now, hell of a name, hell of a quote. Yeah. Am I right? Yeah, we're going to get on to Kalpana in a minute. Before we do, Matt, on this day, yeah. 22nd of November, 1952, San Francisco. San Fran, man. It's only, it's only NBS. <laughs> and who is NBS? <laughs> Nicholas B. Suntzeth. That's a cool surname, isn't it? Suntzef. It's a great surname, isn't Suntzef. it? I probably pronounced it wrong, but sorry about that. American of Russian descent. Distinguished professor. Famous, man, mm-hmm. For setting up the High Z Supernova Search Team, which you know about, don't you? Oh, absolutely. Well, I believe they went on to be the people that essentially showed that the universe is not only expanding, but expanding faster and faster, i.e. dark energy. Imagine being in a team that is called High Z Supernova Search. I reckon because they're from America, they'll be High Z Supernova, won't they? We don't mind if you pronounce it wrong. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Well, I know. Well, exactly. I mean, it's like, yeah, High Z Supernova team. You say High Z, Uh, uh, we say High Z. he, He didn't get a Nobel Prize, but the rest of them did. So he's narrowly missed out on a Nobel. Very, very distinguished uh, astronomer. Well, who else are we talking about? Well, also... Slightly younger chap, born in 1973 on November the 22nd, Chadwick A. Trujillo. Trujillo. Chadders, yeah, yes. Yeah, Chadders, who is a co-discoverer of Eris, Sedna, and 55 other TNOs. That's not shabby, is it? No, it's not. So along with Michael Brown and David Rabinovitz, he discovered Eris in 2003 which essentially was the nail in Pluto's coffin. In other words, it's, it's actually more massive than Pluto. So that's why Pluto can't really be, be considered a planet. More massive than Pluto. MMTP. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. But that's not the only birthday, Jamie. Who else? It's only GSB. Jay, <laughs> I've got to stop this. Yeah, got to stop GSB this. Junior. Now, now, Matt, how do you pronounce the the first name of this oh, gentleman? I'm going to go with Guillaume. You're going to go with Guillaume? Yeah, Guillaume. I was going to say I was going to say Guillaume. No, Guillaume. I'm sure someone will tell us. Well, there's there's a boy that goes to Arthur's school called Guillaume. Oh, there we go. So it's Guillaume Stuart Bluford Junior. We really should know. PhD. Yeah, because this guy is the first African American to go into space. That is genius. And the second person of African descent to go into space. Who was the first, Matt? It was a cosmonaut called Arnoldo Tomeo Mende, who was actually the first Latin American and Cuban to go to space, but also the first person of African descent to go to space. But I would quite like to come back reincarnated as a Cuban astronaut called On. Alnardo Teo Mende. Yeah, yeah, you weren't listening. Cool he, as. he was a cosmonaut, Jamie. He was a cosmonaut. 
Oh, it's just catching you out. Yeah, yeah. Just check, making sure you're awake. But it's but anyway, happy birthday to Guillaume Stewart Blueford, who is an absolute legend. He spent 28 days in space. He was part of 1978 NASA Group 8, and he's flown on all these missions. Check it out. Between 1983 and 1992, he went. He was on STS-8, 61A, 39, and 53. So he'd done a lot of space traveling and not only that he's logged 5200 hours of jet flight time so this guy is a bang out what about this matt philadelphia orchestra premiered hold fast to dreams which was a 25 minute long piece for an orchestra and choir in four movements it was in honor of blueford himself and it's uh, the composer jamie who do we know, who who composed this? Nolan Williams Jr. Another junior. Another junior. Yeah, from one junior to another. It's not very common to call yourself junior in this country, is it? But presumably it isn't. It isn't. No. It is in America. Now here's a Spodcat suggestion. Here we go. Astronaut of the week. Oh, it's a good one. This one. The funny thing is, uh, the, uh, the the astronaut of the week was known as KC. To her friends. Oh, my God. Yes. KC and the Sunshine Band. Kalpana Chola. First Indian woman in space. Literally, Matt. Yeah. A national Indian hero. Yeah. She absolutely is. Do you know who the first Indian man was in space? Or the first or person of Indian descent? Or cast in my mind back, it was Rakesh Sharma. That's that. That's correct, and and it's easy to remember because it's only one letter different from the first Brit in space, Helen Sharman. Isn't that, well, isn't that I'm going to India yeah. in a couple of weeks, so I'm I've I've been swatting up, you know, just in case I bump into. Oh anyone. my God! Let's see if you can find Kalp any any reference to Kalpana or Rakesh. That's your well. If anyone's listening there, I bet from Mumbai, a, can you oh, help? Come me? on, there must be some roads in Mumbai must called be. called Kalpana Road. I bet. Come on. You've got to find I'm going to find one. Got to find Take it. a selfie. So, yes, a really interesting background, Kalpana. This is this should be very inspirational for everyone, actually, because she was the uh, she was the daughter of a guy called Banasari, who, who had fled Pakistan during partition, which was a very, very dangerous time. And mm. uh, and as well as helping the poor, his family is very well known for helping the poor, but they had nothing. And he basically worked his way up with various little businesses to eventually having this really big tire, you know, as in car tire business. Yes. Uh, And uh, she was the youngest child amongst three other girls and one boy. And against the kind of cultural norms, her mother sort of encouraged them to be very outspoken and, uh, and pursue what they really like doing. So... Here's a funny thing. So Kalpana was known simply as Monto at home before she went to school. So she wasn't. E- she they hadn't bothered naming her properly. And when she got to school, they said, "Well, what name do you want?" And so she picked Kalpana because it meant imagination. And wow. Yeah. And so so she kind of chose her own name by the time she got to I school. I love that. That's very cool, isn't it? I wish I'd had the chance. What would you have called yourself if you'd had the chance to call yourself something at the age of four? Um, I mean, I've always been inspired by Matt Russell, so I'll probably go with that. <laughs> That's beautiful. Yeah, I think I'd call if it, myself If it's Matt up for well. grabs. <laughs> it, might, it might have made this podcast a bit confusing. Yeah, with Matt and Matt. I'll, I'll tell you what, you'll you be Matt 
Russell and I'll be Matt Russell Jr. Oh, yes. There we go. Matt Russell Jr. Perfect. So, yes. Uh, and she was instantly fascinated by planes and stars. And I think planes, hmm. because there, there must have been some kind of airfield or something near where she lived. And so she saw a lot of planes, but she also loved stars, literally obsessed with both those two hmm. things. So you can kind of see where her life's heading straight away. So at, at the age of 11, her dad takes her to the local flying club, which just happened to be nearby. And she gets a joyride on, on one of those really, really rickety Indian uh, light aircraft called a pushpack. Pushpack? Pushpack. Okay. And apparently this is what she said at the age of 11. Listen to this for beautiful. How can people be divided into classes, sects and religions when they all look alike from the sky? Well, I mean, that has to be up there with one of the greatest quotes we've ever said on this podcast. Yeah, I love a that. Lovely 11, from a kid. Yeah, from She's a kid, 11. Yeah. And so, so she loved school. Oh, man. She loved school, but she was never really top of the class, but she just loved learning. But she was excellent at sports. And she embraced everything. And here's another quote from her later on in life. Do something because you really want to do it. If you're doing it just for the goal and don't enjoy the path, then I think you're cheating yourself. Bang, another zinger. Yeah. So she's a bit of a tomboy, oh, definitely not a girly yeah. girly, keeps her hair short, plays with the boys. But, nice. But a, a sort of pivotal moment in her life, because she always used to go around telling people that she wanted to be a flight engineer, thinking that, you okay. know, someone that, that engineered aircraft, not the navigator. Uh, and uh, And when she saw the Viking lander, something must have dropped in her brain of, my God, not only could you fly, but you could fly to space. Dan, Space Dan. travel. Yeah, so she did a Bachelor of Science degree in aeronautical engineering. The first woman ever to uh, graduate from that college in aeronautical engineering. Tick. Uh, tick. Then she went, she moved to America to uh, study Master of Science in Aerospace from the University of University University of Texas in 1984. Easy for you to say. And then she got a doctorate of philosophy in aerospace engineering from the University of Colorado in 1988. Bang. So not yes, too shabby. Not too shabby at all. So, which of course then she gets comes to the attention of good old NASA and works of works for the Ames Research Center. So she. Her work, remember Harrier Jump Jets, Jamie? Mm. So that's what a lot of her work was all about. In other words, the gnarly power lift computations of fluid dynamics. Pretty gnarly, mate. Yeah, that, it is gnarly. That's gnarly maths right there. So she's she is at the cutting edge of all that type of thing. In 93, she becomes vice president and research scientist of a company called Overset Methods, which is looking uh -huh. at simulation of moving multiple body problems, which, of course, are incredibly complicated, aerodynamic mm. optimization, and she's written lots and lots of technical papers Ooh. while working there. But in 1994, she becomes an astronaut candidate, uh, or at least auditions to become an astronaut, and is in the uh -huh. 15th group of astronauts ever chosen by NASA. So she's a mission specialist, uh, particularly about robotic arm operation and stuff like that. And then she gets her dream job, Jamie. Here we go. STS, 
87, Columbia, November the 19th, so literally just a couple of days ago, back in 1997, she flew as a payload specialist on STS-87. Oh, imagine the feeling. Oh, my God. After a lifetime of dreaming about stars. Oh, she, she actually describes it. She describes the takeoff. So, get this. This is what she says, and this is really interesting. When you lift off, the pressure is supposed to be maximum, but actually it's very benign, very enjoyable. But as soon as the engine's cut off and you get to zero gravity, you feel as if you're being pushed off your seat. You feel disorientated. You don't feel aligned with anything. I felt for a good few hours that I was falling. Wow. <laughs> weird, huh? Oh, my God. Yeah, totally weird. So she traveled Can't six. imagine that. <laughs> so she traveled 6.5 million miles <laughs> while she was oh, up blimey. on STS-87. That's not bad. But the cool, coolest thing, do you know what? She's a Deep Purple fan. So, yeah, man. So she's taking Deep Purple CDs up with her when she's doing all this stuff. And uh, yeah, do you reckon she was playing Fire as they were blasting off? No, that I can't remember what songs. I think it's Space Trucking was the one that she liked. <laughs> she's a proper <laughs> rocker, course. man. She's this is super cool. Wow. And she was actually in charge of the Spartan satellite. Now, Spartan satellites is a really cool one because. It malfunctioned, which she was totally exonerated. It had nothing to do with her, but she, but she deployed it. It didn't work. And then Winston Scott and Takodoy had to manually capture the Spartan satellite. So they had to go out and literally grab the thing Jeez. back into the thing. So yeah, that's that, scary. That's, that's an amazing mission. Uh, and then she gets her second flight in 2003 on STS-107 Columbia. Now, that's going to be, for a lot of people, people are going to be knowing what's coming up next. But that was a 16-day flight Mm. dedicated to science. Uh, Very, very busy schedule of doing lots and lots of different um, science experiments. They conducted over 80 experiments on that flight. Yes. When it was returning, this was the space shuttle that, as it took off, a large piece of foam uh, from the external tank had hit the wing of the sp- spacecraft. Yeah. It, the damage was worse than they uh, had suspected, and unfortunately, the, the the spacecraft broke up on re-entry. Awful. Oh, I remember it as a kid. Yeah, and Bush, uh, President Bush at the time, said. An administrator at a high school recalled, she always said she wanted to reach the stars. She went there and beyond. Kalpana's native country mourns her today, and so does her adopted land. Well said. Mm. Almost, I actually welled well up a little said. bit saying that, because I feel as though I know yeah, it now. It's, it's yeah, like, it's hard, actually. It's really... Uh, yeah, do you know what? It's... It's one of those things, isn't it, that you sort of think, ah, oh, wouldn't it have been great to, you know, get her on the show and have a little chat about Deep Purple and the stars, but oh. it wasn't to be. 
Very sad. Very sad. But she was one of the people that paved the way, you know? No, absolutely. And, and, and of course, she really is an absolute legend in India. Oh, God. I mean, look at, look at the legacy she left behind. And what an inspiration to young girls looking to get into the industry. Incredible. Or, or just, or any youngster really looking at someone that can, totally. can just come from anything and, and you can, and you can yeah. follow your dream. The, she's actually uh, another Indian legend or a, a person of Indian descent is Sunita Williams, who, who yes. had the responsibility on the day of, as the casualty assistance case officer. So these are the people that are assigned to, to rush around the, surviving relatives houses which was jean pierre yeah. harrison who's also a flying enthusiast who she who she had been married to and met on the day after she had arrived in america to do her master's degree so yeah. and obviously that this was that they were a super couple and uh of flying enthusiasts and he wrote the definitive kind of uh biography on um on his wife and uh, yes. yeah, Sunita, Sunita Williams looked after them, and apparently that he'd he'd kind of arranged that because he knew that she would be absolutely the best person to do the job. So mm. yeah, Deep Purple had become friends with her at this point, and uh, the guitarist Mr. Morse had yes. uh, wrote a song called Contact Light, pretty much the day after all this had happened, and it uh, all the royalties go to the families of the lost on that particular incredible thing, yeah. stuff. So yeah, wow, yeah, but but yeah. Well, we're not going to get much better than that on astronaut of the week. No, we're really not. That you know that the, the the CDs that she took to space were machine head, perpendicular, and down to earth, and they were found in the debris and uh, used in the commemorative plaques that wow. of the seven astronauts. So Deep Purple got so the little loved a, little loved a bit of uh, metal. Brilliant. Well, yeah. Well, it brings a whole new meaning to fire in the sky, doesn't it? That really does and we have powerful stuff we have mentioned kalpana before very very briefly we talked about uh the space station kalpana one we did which is uh which is basically an improvement on the burnell sphere the stanford taurus and the o'neill cylinders so yeah that's a, a kind of uh, named after in honor of uh, kalpana chola and rightly so tip of the cap Rest in peace. So, yes, a very great suggestion for Astronaut of the Week. She totally and utterly deserves it. What an absolute, total legend. Absolutely agreed. Thank you, Podcats. Excellent stuff. Uh, Matt, has there been any space news to talk about? There has been quite a bit of space news, as normal. Uh, the what big, we got? I'm going to I'm going to start you on a on a on a very intriguing one. The new mystery on Mars. Oh, I like the sound of it. Yeah, so there's a new paper by Melissa G. Trainer et al. called Seasonal Variations in Atmospheric Composition as Measured in Gale Crater. Presumably, oh, I've already read it, but carry on. Yeah, Curiosity has been doing some very fine work. And so oxygen has been observed to show significant seasonal and year-to-year -year variability, suggesting an unknown atmospheric or surface process at work. During the summer months, you have far too much oxygen and too little in winter. There is no explanation for this, and the meteorological and geological explanations have mostly been ruled out or deemed unlikely. Now, that's not even the exciting part, Jamie. 
Uh, what is then? Well, this is what Melissa uh, Trainer said about that. She said, the fact that the oxygen behavior isn't perfectly repeatable every season makes us think that it's not an issue that has to do with atmospheric dynamics. It has to be some chemical source and sink that we can't yet account for. And this is what uh, her colleague, Timothy uh, McConaughey, said. He's the assistant research uh, a scientist at University of Maryland. Yeah. It has to be something in the surface soil that changes seasonally because there aren't enough available oxygen atoms in the atmosphere to create the behaviour we see. So this, that the really exciting thing about this is that intriguingly the fluctuations in oxygen are sometimes correlated with that mysterious methane fluctuations that we've been talking about quite oh, a lot yes we have now there was a study in 2014 by a guy called sean domagal goldman from the nasa's goddard space flight center mm-hmm. and he'd pointed out what you, uh, the kind of false positives you could get from exoplanets of trying to look for extraterrestrial life and signatures for life and in the, if you had methane in the atmosphere it could be geological if you had oxygen in the atmosphere it could be geological but if you could get the signatures of both uh, methane and oxygen, it would really be very exciting. It almost like a, a like an absolute strong signal for life. That is strong. If you take that uh, particular study into account, this oxygen and methane being connected to each other in the atmosphere on Mars, tentatively, really could mean that there's a very strong signature of life, Jamie. Well, it's all I ever wanted to know. You know this. It's all Bowie wanted to know, Jamie. I know. He kept singing year after year. He would stand in front of thousands of people and ask the question, is there life on Mars? Is there life on Mars? And there might be. We're close to finding out. We might be close, but let's be cautious, even though it sounds exciting. Yes. By far the most likely scenario still is that it's an unknown non-life process, I would have thought. But... Yes, it's completely. certainly not what you would call a dead end. This is no. You've got me excited now, Matt. I'm not going to be able to sleep <laughs> again. Uh, it, it, here's a very odd. Here's a very odd story I picked up on Jamie, a former astronaut, James Halsell Jr. Yeah, another junior. Uh, he is going up for a murder trial uh, because of reckless driving in Am- Alabama. He killed two girls, and his trial oh is, is next month. But the lawyer is citing a drug called Ambien in the fatal crash. So Halsell, who flew on five shuttle missions, this is a seriously veteran shuttle astronaut, oh, uh, has pleaded blimey. not guilty. So that's, a, that's, um, that's worth following, isn't it? That really is, yes. All eyes on that. We, we really should talk about Starlink. So you know that another bunch say. of Starlink satellites went up, Jamie. Yeah, well, astronomers are getting worried, Matt. Certainly are. And, and I am too. I must admit, the more I think about it, the more kind of worried I am about this because it, it clearly is a nightmare. Well, let me give you a quote. Dr. Tyson, mm-hmm. he's the chief scientist for the Large Synoptic Survey Telescope, says... If there are lots and lots of bright-moving objects in the sky, it tremendously complicates our job, he told the Times. He said, it potentially threatens the science of astronomy itself. That's bad news. It isn't great, is it? 
Yeah, actually, it was J- it was James Lowenthal that said it potentially threatens the science of astronomy itself. That may be a little bit uh, over the top. I mean, not the whole of astronomy, but certainly if you have lots and lots of satellites up in the air, and bear in mind we've only got a very small, like 0.1% of the goddamn Starlink that's supposed to be going up, and they're already interfering with, say, five minutes of viewing time on a very large telescope that costs a fortune... Then when all of them are up, we could see the loss of, say, half an hour every night. Well, that's going to be potentially catastrophic in terms of the interference with with astronomy. It's it's absolutely... Let's Let's not get too down in the dumps yet. No. Well, I'll tell you what has been called. Titan has now been fully mapped. Oh, finally. I can go now. Yeah, you can go now and not get lost. Um, I've been uh, waiting for ages for this. I know. And uh, the clips providers. So NASA announced a whole uh, a whole new bunch of companies to join all the other companies that they're using uh, for clips, which yeah. is the Commercial Lunar Payload Services Initiative. In Should we take words, it in turns to read some out, Matt? Go on then. Astrobotic Technology. Who are taking the little British... Spider Robot, Space Bit One. We got Blue Origin, Ceres Robotics, Deep Space Systems, Draper, Firefly, Intuitive Machines, <laughs> Lockheed Martin Space, Maston Space Systems, Moon Express, Our Mate Bob, Orbit Beyond, Sierra Nevada Corporation, SpaceX, and Tyvek Nano. Well, what a collection. So that's all the ones that are going to be part. The five new ones included uh, Blue Origin for their Blue Moon Lander and SpaceX mm. for its Starship vehicle that can deliver awesome. 100 metric tons to the moon at one Some billionth big. of the price of SLS. <laughs> <laughs> you are a salesman, aren't you? Yes, it's it's like ridiculous. Oh, Jamie, Jamie, I thought you Jamie. were going to say you didn't hit record then. I was going to throw up everywhere. Were you? Oh, no, yeah. I, I have I have hit record. And I wouldn't tell you even if I hadn't. I would just go home and record my parts again. <laughs> <laughs> Fair play. Um, um, Fair play. Jamie. Yeah? Do you like to listen to my um, interview with Chris Carberry? Do I? Chris Carberry has a new book out called Alcohol in Space, one of our favourite... One of our favourite subjects, it really is. Well, and this this week, they actually sent... There has been some loads of bottles of wine that have gone up to the Blumin space station. Really? Yeah, in the wine... Well, they should be sending us some, surely. Yeah, it's called Vitis Vinum in Spatium Experimentia. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Sounds That's like another word for, we're going to get pissed, can you send us some wine? They're not allowed to open the bottles on the space station. It's literally, they're going to send them up, they've got like the same bottles on Earth, and then they're going to taste how they, they how they change in taste due to the radiation and zero G. Um, okay. So, anyway, shall we listen to Chris Carberry? Because he's got some very interesting points about alcohol Let's... in space, and I actually am very looking forward to reading that book. Which is, Me I believe, which I believe is out now, but it, uh, there'll be links in the uh, in the notes. Roll it, Akute, Akute, Chris. The interplanetary podcast, putting the ace back into space. So I'm joined on the podcast 
by Chris Carberry. Hello, Chris. How are you? I'm great. How are you? Thanks for having me on. Oh, it's absolutely my pleasure. Uh, whereabouts are you in the world? I'm in the Washington, D.C. area, Northern Virginia. Oh, awesome. Uh, so, yes, I'm uh, I'm calling you in the darkness in North Devon, and I suspect it's nice and sunny out where you are. It actually is nice and sunny. You are correct. Well, first of all, before, before we get started, uh, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, what your journey has been, your interest in space? Well, right now I am the CEO of a nonprofit called Explore Mars. Explore Mars runs the largest um, annual conference in the world focused on sending humans to Mars. And that's that takes place every year in Washington, D.C. every May. And the next one will be May 12th through 14th, um, 2020, at the National Academy of Sciences building in D.C. We also do a lot of STEM education work, a lot of policy work, and run these workshops to bring the space community together to find sustainable ways to get humans to Mars. And we've been trying each year to grow and grow and try to bring in more communities, including more of the international community as well, but also the lunar community. So over the last couple of years, trying to bring in folks working on lunar architectures as well as the Mars architects and scientists to trying to find ways, if we're going to go to the moon, how can we utilize the moon in such a way that helps us get to Mars without delaying Mars by decades? Easy question for you. With the, uh, with the advent of Artemis program, is that something that you really look forward to in terms of, do you think Artemis is going to speed up getting to Mars or do you think it has actually stuck a maybe a bit of a, a, a stumbling block in terms of time to get to Mars? Well, it, it depends. You know, we're certainly happy with an accelerated timeline. We've always been, you know, over the last several years, we've been a little hesitant to uh, support plans that would land humans on the moon before we on, went on to the Mars. But in those previous plans, People are always talking about, well, maybe we'll get back to the moon by the early, by the late 2020s, early 2030s, and then Mars sometime after that. Within that scenario, yeah, we didn't cer certainly didn't support that because it was essentially delaying Mars indefinitely, so we didn't see any hope. However, if we can really, if the Artemis program can really accelerate things, if if the budgets and the political will remains, as well as this international partnership that's building that can really start building up speed. Yeah, we certainly support it because if we can get, even if we don't get back to the moon by 2024, even if it's 2025 or 2026, that's really speeding things up and we're finally getting out of Earth, low Earth orbit. And I can see certainly see us getting to Mars by the 2030, 20, mid-2030s. If we can really keep up that pace and we can really keep the program focused on the goal of utilizing the moon to get to Mars. One thing we do not support, as you can imagine, is it turning into a moon-only program. A lot of has been said, hasn't it, on the uh, it being just a stepping stone to Mars. Yeah, that's been a lot. There's been a lot of discussion on that, and you know, you, depending on you who you talk to, you hear different perspectives on that. Obviously, many people within the lunar community don't want it to be seen, the moon meaning, don't want the moon to be seen just as a stepping stone. They want to make sure they lay the groundworks for sustainability on the moon. And we're not opposed to that as long as it's done in a proper way. If we can truly harness the commercial sector 
Uh, so the commercial entities start coming in behind uh, NASA and international space agencies and start really developing, do whether utilizing the resources or doing other activities on the moon, allowing us to move onwards to Mars. So, yeah, in t- talking of commercial then, uh, what are your feelings on people like Elon Musk and, and his starship? Is that something that you are extremely excited about or maybe even slightly dubious about? Which one? Um, both. <laughs> you know, I've always been a great fan of Elon Musk and we've followed what he's been doing actually from the very beginning. And... Um, so we certainly, I think he's done a lot of great things, very excited about what Starship and a lot of his other capabilities are going to be able to do. But we also don't want people to get too carried away and assume that SpaceX or Elon Musk is going to be able to do it by themselves. It's, you know, maybe Starship will um, uh, be able to perform as Elon says. Maybe it won't. Maybe it'll be able to do it in the timeline that he's talking about at the end within the budget he's talking about, maybe not. So we certainly are hopeful, but we wouldn't want to make, we wouldn't want to put all of our hopes into one company. We Mm. think it's great that there are so many entities around the world that are working on this. So I think it's best that we keep moving as a collaborative effort if a company, whether it be SpaceX, Blue Origin, or somebody else, finds some um, miraculous new capability that's just going to literally rocket ahead of everybody else that's great but we're not going to um count on that until we see it what do you see as say the three biggest hurdles that we've got to get over to actually see boots on the martian surface well from a technical perspective and we work with a lot of the top mission architectures in the world uh, usually the top one that they feel needs to be solved before we can get humans safely on the surface of Mars, meaning not in a big crater on the surface of Mars, <laughs> is, um, is entry, descent, and landing. Uh, right now, the largest thing that's ever been landed on Mars is the Curiosity rover, which was landed in 2012. That was essentially about one metric ton. We're sending humans to Mars. We, we're going to need to send a land... Um, minimum 20 to 40 metric tons. And so, and we're not, certainly not going to be able to land them the way we landed Curiosity. As you recall, Curiosity was lowered down a thigh crane, like this winch, you know, lowering it down from the retro rocket pa- uh, pad. And so we're not going to be landing humans that way. So that's one of the biggest issues. Perhaps perhaps the biggest issue is not even technical. It's, it's political, I mm. think. Keeping focused, keeping a consistent policy, consistent funding and sufficient funding over, you know, it's not just the United States, but I think most people assume the United States will take the leading role. And if we decide to suddenly shift directions when the next, if there's, say, a new um, administration coming in in 2021, you know, that could set things back. So we're hoping as it actually, as it happened as a tra- in the transition between the last administration, not a lot changed because the Congress wanted to keep things fairly focused. There were some cosmetic changes, a little more emphasis on the moon. Generally, the program moved ahead and was even accelerated. So we're hoping that that will continue if we change into a new administration in 2021. And I think we have a good shot at that because 
thankfully, space exploration is one of the very few things um, in the United States that has not become partisan. Both Republicans and Democrats tend to be very supportive of human space exploration and have been very, enth- uh, very enthusiastic about sending humans to Mars. So we hope that it does not get politicized as the presidential campaign heats up. Yeah, I mean, that, that's been one of the problems, hasn't it, with the direction that uh, NASA in particular is going in, is that there hasn't been, it keeps flip-flopping between, are oh, we going to Mars, we're going to Moon, we're going to Mars, we're going to Moon, and, and every time the administra- administration changes, you have this situation where the, the plan changes, and of course, there's no, there's no solid direction. Yeah, that has been the problem, but I'm hoping once again that we'll be able to move forward uh, without that problem, without it getting too politicized, because we're actually in a better position now than we have been, frankly, ever to move forward and actually get some stuff done. Obviously, we were able to get things done during the Apollo program, but that was not a sustainable program. It was literally one reason, political, official reason for going to the moon, that was to beat the Soviet Union. We did that. And then after that, there was no actual uh, motivation to continue. So we stopped going to the moon. Now we're trying to build, we're building this um, program that is not only sustainable, sustainable from a budgetary and programmatic perspective, but also from a political perspective. And so we're doing it for many reasons. It's not just one overarching reason Reason we're doing it. We're doing it for many reasons. So that's what we're hoping to achieve. But we're, you know, we're getting pretty close. We have a lot of architecture, a lot of capabilities are about to come online. And so once we start seeing, once the public starts seeing large rockets taking off and large chunks of hardware being um, put on display and launched into space, I think that'll build the enthusiasm. The one question that I never see sort of fully fleshed out is the one about how do you how do you transport people for that six to eight month journey from Earth to Mars? What what does that actually look like? What does the actual spacecraft that they're sitting in actually look like? You mean the design of it or what they're going to be doing? Well, bit of uh, well, a, a bit of both. I mean, because because for me, I think it's the psychological aspect of getting to Mars. I think is going to be the biggest hurdle. I've just never really seen the the, the great solution for that and where it's coming from. And 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 you'd really want to go to Mars in in the thirties. Then surely we should be seeing some of that really taking shape now. There actually is. There are actually a lot of interesting plans. Um, no shortage of them, and I can send those to you. No, absolutely, yeah. And so, you know, from a more traditional perspective, and then, of course, um, SpaceX has produced its own version as well, which, you know, they're proposing a much larger vehicle. But there are a number of concepts out there that are quite viable. But, of course, they all have to take into account uh, crew psychology, as you mentioned. That is going to be one of the biggest issues. People talk about the radiation issues and other issues about being in microgravity. But from what I've heard, it's probably that crew co- uh, crew uh, psychology that may be the biggest issue. You know, making sure, first off, they remain busy along the way with uh, worthwhile activities and worthwhile um, uh, leisure activities as well, but are also able to have some private time. So a 
key part of any uh, facility, any habitat they're sending to Mars or on the surface of Mars is making sure that they have private space. Doesn't have to be a lot of private space, but as you can imagine, you don't want to be in basically grouped with your crew members every second of every day for, you know, frankly, if you're going like six to eight months there, a year and a half on the surface, and then six to eight months back. So essentially three years, you know, in close proximity with your crew. So it's very important that they have uh, um, private space, even just small compartments to escape. It's a very, very hard one to overcome because my background is I see people that go on just regular rock and roll tours on on tour buses that that may go on for a year and a half. And it's really, really tough on the people that, that do it. Yeah, now I can imagine. So and this will be this will be much more difficult. So of course, yeah, when yeah. they're picking initial, you know, specifically the initial crews, you know that those crew dynamics, crew psychology are going to play a really critical role. Their their skills on the surface, whether it be engineering, being able to fix fix broken um, equipment having medical background, scientific background, et cetera, are going to be very important. If it's clear they don't have the right psychological makeup to go, they're not going to want to send them. Can, can I ask one, one like little tiny, just a technical point? With the first Mars missions, when they land, do you see a, a large rocket landing or do you see a, a, something like the original Apollo missions where you, you, you get into orbit and you drop down? Or And, and if so, do you... How do you expect some kind of um, resources of Mars being used to actually get back? Or or do you think the initial missions are going to have to take absolutely everything with them? I think they will need to take absolutely everything with them. Eventually, and hopefully sooner than later, we'll start utilizing the resources on Mars. However, I think the initial missions, most of the uh, concepts that are out there right now, call for pre-positioning equipment. So you'd have possibly the return vehicle as well as, you know, the habitat fully loaded lands before you send the crew, then you send the crew. So, you know, you actually have this return vehicle. You have, you know, you have the equipment there, the supplies there. Um, So you don't send everything in one landing. You send them you know, multiple landings, probably two at first. So it'll be much more elaborate than Apollo, which was only staying in a short period of time. But it still won't be, it won't be giant, you know, these giant landers landing, except, you know, now SpaceX has proposed something bigger. I'm not quite sure what uh, their current thinking is for landing, how many people they want to land at once. I can't recall. But I know when Elon Musk originally uh, released his concept for Mars. He was proposing landing 100 people at once, which is a lot. And so, um, you know, currently NASA's thinking is maybe landing between four and six people. So 100's a lot more than that. And so that's going to come <laughs> with a lot more challenges of first off entry, descent, and landing, but frankly, keeping everybody alive on the surface of Mars. Yeah, particularly considering they have to stay there for some time. Yeah, and frankly, I've uh, you know I certainly hope SpaceX can um, move forward on their plans, but I also think it makes more sense to send smaller crews at first to just see if humans can live on Mars. We're pretty sure they can, but I think it's best to have initial uh, crews there 
to make sure there's not anything there that's going to um, that we're unaware of that's going to kill your crew or to find out and to make sure that we can actually live off the land. Can we utilize the water on Mars or the CO2 atmosphere uh, that we, as we think we can? There's no reason why we can think of why we couldn't, but we still haven't done it. And can we actually grow crops on Mars, meaning within a habitat? We're pretty sure we can. We've done it in simulated soil on, on Earth, but we haven't actually done it in real Martian soil. And are there any toxins in the soil that will prevent that or would uh, actually poison the food that's being grown? So it's good to be able to figure that out before we send a lot of people there. There hasn't been much good news, has there, on the on the soil front of regolith Mars, because it, it, it does seem to be quite poisonous, full of perchlorates. Is that right? That is correct. However, there are some bypasses for perchlorates. Apparently, you can burn it off, you can wash it off. There is even bacteria, I believe, that will eat it away. So they have they have ways of dealing with perchlorates. However, they still haven't done it yet. So, and we have to verify how problematic it is. Because even if we can clean the soil before growing food in it, how much of a problem is it going to be for the crew walking around on the surface? Obviously, they'll have spacesuits. But of course, they'll bring in soil as they're coming into the air airlock, et cetera. So they're not going to be able to help but inhale some of it or consume some of it during the mission. So it really will be important to see how much of an issue that is. Oh, there's, I mean, there's other there's other plans on the on the drawing boards. People like Robert Zubrin and Buzz Aldrin have have talked about cyclers and and those kind of things. Where do you think that fits in? Yeah, of course, Buzz has been the one pushing cyclers, and I think over time. It's certainly an interesting concept. And so I, I can certainly see cyclers taking over, you know, if we start continuously going to Mars, having the cycler continually making that round trip, I think that would be a really interesting concept. As for Zubrin's concept, Mars Direct, uh, I think right now Zubrin's approach is actually, well, I don't think it's going to happen exactly the way Zubrin has proposed it. I think Robert Zubrin has... Um, has influenced influenced current thinking on mission architecture quite a bit. As I mentioned earlier, current thinking um, calls for pre-positioning uh, return rockets or supplies or other things. Well, that that's what Robert Zubrin proposed back in the mid-90s in a case for Mars. He also advocated using in-situ resource utilization, and generally everybody assumes We'll be using that. Maybe not on the first missions, but everybody agrees we're not going to be able to have sustainable uh, sustainable human presence on Mars without being able to utilize the resources. So, you know, it's I have doubts whether um, missions to Mars will happen exactly the way that Zubrin or Buzz Aldrin have proposed, but I can see, and they already have, uh, I can see how their concepts will influence how mission architectures are developed, you know, from the first missions and moving forward. See, what I what I really want to know <laughs> is, am I going to see humans get to Mars in my lifetime? Would you gamble for or against on that one? I would gamble for it. I think there's no reason why we can't. I mean, it's, you know, now, of course, that was, that's been the reason for the last 50 years. So, <laughs> <laughs> you know, during the Apollo program, people were talking about going to Mars in the 80s. 
we missed that by a lot. And so, um, but I think we're in a better position now. I think a lot of things can derail it, but I, I'd be willing to bet that we'd be getting, you'll see humans walking on the surface of Mars in your lifetime. Um, you know, I think I think there's enough momentum right now, even though it's not as focused as it should be. And I know that things just don't move as quickly as we'd like, whether it be building architectures or just politically. I think we've made some really good progress over the last few years. So we're well poised to actually start doing some stuff. So I, I, I'd say I, I would bet on it. Then again, I run a Mars organization. If I came on your show and said, I wouldn't bet on it, it wouldn't really do much for my organization. Yeah. <laughs> no, absolutely. And I, um, yeah, so in the 30s, do you think the 30s is a is a reasonable time frame? It is. Absolutely is. I mean, if you listen to Elon Musk, he'd say he says he could do it much sooner, maybe, maybe not, but – I think the 2030s is a very realistic time frame. However, <laughs> you know, it seems time goes by quickly. We just can't keep talking about it and talking about it forever because over time, of course, it becomes less and less likely if we're not moving forward. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's going to take a monumental effort, isn't it? And it's going to take uh, a, quite a focused and for things not to change. Like you said, I, 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 I'm with you. I think there, there is definitely feels, particularly in the last couple of years, a, a head of steam building for space because you've got new space and old space and China and India and lots of other people joining in and, oh. and it becoming more of a, a, a kind of a large international effort. So oh, it is. It's, it's, it's remarkable because so many small countries, developing countries, are now starting space programs. You know, we're now in an age when... Even high schools, you know, students can have their own space program, sending CubeSats into orbit. And so now pretty much any country who wants to have a space program, a small one, but still a space program, can do it. So you're seeing countries, you know, in Africa and South America and other places all around the world. I saw developing space programs. Um I was at the IAC, the International um, Aeronautical Congress in Washington, D.C. a couple of weeks ago. It was just remarkable, all the different small space programs from different countries around the world. And so I think it's just building momentum. So on to a completely different subject. Uh, you've got a book coming out shortly, which, which uh, definitely tickles my fancy. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, alcohol in space. As crazy as it sounds, it's a real topic. Now, the original concept for this originally, as you can imagine, was more of a joke, as space folks might do over a drink at a bar or someplace. Occasionally, we kind of shift to the topic of, I wonder what wine would taste like if you made it on Mars, or could you brew beer or spirits in microgravity or things like that? And so I originally was thinking of writing an article on this topic, kind of lighthearted. But over time, I ran into more and more companies and organizations that were actually working on real projects to see if you could manufacture alcohol in space and microgravity or, or in a Martian or lunar soil, or if you could create um, glasses you know, for drinking, whether it be scotch glasses or wine glasses or other types of glasses to enable you to drink um, 
more authentically uh, in space. You're not just drinking little gobs, circular gobs of alcohol in microgravity. And so the more I looked at it, the more of these companies I always kept finding. Like, for instance, um, Ardbeg, the uh, Scottish whiskey producer, sent up the first scotch aging experiment back in 2011, I think it was. And it came back to Earth. And, you know, they realized it, you know, there was a lot of changes in it. Now they were, they're hoping to do another experiment, see if these changes were really a result of the aging and microgravity or the um, the severe shaking and bad handling it may have gotten on the way back and on the way up. But other companies have been doing this. Suntory, the Japanese whiskey maker, currently has a scotch aging, not scotch, they're not scotch, uh, whiskey <laughs> aging experiment up on ISS. And just a couple of weeks ago, uh, I believe about a dozen bottles of Bordeaux wine were sent up for a wine aging experiment on ISS. And the American beer maker Budweiser currently has has done three experiments for barley uh, in, in orbit right now. And there have been a lot of others. There have also been other groups looking at whether you can grow, you know, looking at simulated Martian soil. Can you grow hops or barley or, or, or sorghum? in the simulated Mars soil and other groups, as I mentioned before, that have been working on, for instance, a, a champagne producer, Maison Moum, have been working on a champagne that you can drink in orbit and a glass. Now, the reason why you wonder why they would do this is because with champagne or with beer, so you know it's carbonated. And carbonation actually doesn't react the same way in microgravity as it does in 1G. When you're in 1G, the carbonation goes upward. But in micro-G, it doesn't. It all goes to the center, and it'll do that in your stomach as well. So they've experimented with Coca-Cola, Pepsi, and other carbonated beverages, and you tend to get stomach cramps and you wet burp. So that's not that's not necessarily the drinking experience you want to have. For <laughs> so there's been a number of groups looking at whether you can actually create a carbonated alcoholic or other other kind of carbonated beverage that is carbonated enough so it doesn't take away the feel like it's not like with beer you don't want to decarbonate it enough so it doesn't taste like beer. It tastes like kind of beer tasting tea or something like that but also maintains the taste because that's another issue they're working on because astronauts in orbit report that their taste buds tend to have be impacted. You don't taste as well. Feel like that. It feels like you have a cold. So like one particular uh, beer manufacturer in Australia who created uh, a beer that they intend for orbit called Vostok, named after the first human flight that Yuri Gagarin was on. And so they picked a stout beer and played around a little bit with the carbonation to find the right balance. And they tested this on the uh, zero-G flight, you know, the vomit comet, uh, the private vomit comet flight that does parabolas and creates small periods of weightlessness here in the United States. So this was all put together in a book, but it's not just looking at that. Looking at the interesting history, I, I'm sure you'll be shocked but people have consumed alcohol in space. <laughs> I'm assuming it's most mostly the Russians. <laughs> I, the Russians, uh, it would appear, based on the stories, they're primarily the ones who have been the suppliers. 
but not the only ones who've consumed it. However, the, the, the Americans have brought it up as well. Did you know that wine was consumed on the surface of the moon? Is it Buzz Aldrin did some form of communion on, on the moon? Is that right? He did, yes. He consumed wine on the super communion, so it wasn't for the pleasure necessarily of consuming alcoholic beverages, but it was part of a communion ceremony. But prior to that, Apollo 8, some bottles of brandy were sent up. They didn't drink them. It was more of a joke. So, but And so Jim Lovell actually auctioned off his bottle. It went up into space a number of years ago. I forgot what it, what it was auctioned for, but it was auctioned for a lot, as you can imagine. Mm, yeah, yeah. Um, but, but yeah, the Russians certainly have brought up, it would appear based on the stories that I was told during it as I was researching this. And I interviewed a lot of people. Most people assume that vodka is the drink of choice in orbit, but that's actually not the case. Cognac it is the drink of choice in space, <laughs> and so there's been a lot of you know, a lot of ceremonial you know groups you know little celebrations in space where they um, have little shots of cognac, and this is where you know the international crews participate. I found no evidence of this being abused at all, but it was often used as bonding experiments. Sometimes it'd be a little reception over in the Russian part of the space station, but it's also strayed from what I've heard to other locations as well. So it seems as though, now I don't disagree with the current um, prohibition in space, the official prohibition, but it seems that the consumption of alcohol, at least that I was told about in space, uh, has, was not done to excess and all actually served a pretty um, important uh, diplomatic role, created bonding experience between cosmonauts, astronauts, and other international um, space explorers. I wonder how expensive a bottle of cognac becomes once it's been launched into space, just on just getting the mass up there. I don't know, but there are some pretty ingenious ways that um, they use to actually smuggle it on board. Yeah, you know, whether it be hollowing out a book, you know, <laughs> putting it, putting it, hiding it somewhere on the spacesuit. I heard one story where, of course, when cosmonauts went up, of course, they had to f- stay within a certain weight. And they could bring up a few personal items, but they had to stay within a certain weight. So I heard some stories of them deliberately going on a crash diet before the launch to lose a certain amount of weight so they could carry that weight and, and cognac. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, so yeah, so I suppose in some ways it, it's free. It's a free ride as long as they lost the weight beforehand. Yes. <laughs> so, so we've got, yeah, making alcohol in space, consuming alcohol in space. Was there any other kind of shocking stories or, or or things that you'd never thought about with uh, with with booze in space? Well, it's interesting. The book doesn't only deal with that. It tells, of course, as I mentioned, the history of it, what's gone on, what's going on now. But I also look at some of the enabling technologies. And this is where it has direct overlap with this. It's the same requirements that we need for going to Mars, interestingly, because if we're going to manufacture alcohol anywhere, we need to be able to grow stuff. We need agriculture. And so I have a whole chapter looking at agriculture, what's going on around the world for space agriculture, whether it be in, in orbit in the, on the ISS, where there are a, a number of greenhouses up there where they, okay, they grow lettuce and other 
crops up there, but or other projects, once again, looking at whether you can grow uh, crops in simulated Mars soil or um, lunar soil or these other facility, large analog facilities testing out how you can uh, not not utilizing the soil, soil, but finding other ways of growing food uh, separate from the soil. Uh, hydroponics, aeroponics, things like that. So I have a whole chapter looking at the prospect, you know, what the prospects of agriculture and maybe other technologies that could come into play, like synthetic biology, 3D printing, or even things like um, cell-grown meat. Well, it, you know, could have play an impact. It's certainly going to play an impact on sustainability on Mars. I also look at how science fiction has dealt with it. You know, I think we can all look at various television shows, movies, and books that have bars, like in Star Wars, the cantina bar, or, uh, you know, they bring out a bottle of wine or scotch someplace. You know, the newer Battlestar Galactica television show yeah. seemed there half the crew was uh, almost always drunk. <laughs> and so it wasn't necessarily the most positive depiction of alcohol in space, but you know, just looking at how science fiction, every science fiction depiction I've seen is pretty much assumed there's going to be alcohol in space. And so that's part of the premise of the book. You know, whether you think we should drink in space or not, whether you drink or not, I think we should all assume there's people who are going to drink in space since they already have. And so we might as well look at the subject because right now it's there are two taboos that I've seen in space exploration that people don't like to talk about, alcohol in space and sex in space. And so both will eventually happen. However, alcohol is an easier one to talk about because it's, you know, it's something we can really look at. You know, the, the sex and space thing is really challenging. You can't you can't exactly go up and, well, experiment with it. And we won't go too far down that path. But with <laughs> alcohol, you know, we have absolutely, even though we know people have uh, consumed alcohol in space, we have no studies on how the human body metabolizes alcohol in space. And so we're pretty sure it does it fairly, uh, it metabolizes it fairly well since, you know, we have a lot of um, anecdotal stories, but nothing scientific has been conducted to look at this. Yeah, that's, that's, that is really fascinating. I, I, I love the fact that you, yeah, you've thought about how you might grow the crops and stuff like that. Presumably things like GM genetically modifying these organisms, hops will grow well in lunar regolith, for example. Yeah, no, and so this is, and this is another interesting area because this is where we get this exciting crossover. And as so, as you get more and more alcohol producers interested in this whole concept, whether they can create an alcohol, manufacture um, alcohol in space, so create new methods here on Earth, or if it's you know for future future thinking, you know, for instance, Budweiser announced you know it was the last year I believe they wanted to be the first beer manufacturer on Mars. That's great, but as more and more companies are looking at this. They are actually doing important work that could have value to humans on Mars separately if they're drinking or not. If alcohol producers are investing money on agriculture and space, that's a good thing. Or if they're looking at other techniques that are going to have, that might have benefits to producing alcohol, but are also going to benefit just basic human necessities on Mars, the moon, or elsewhere, that's a good thing. And this is where these interesting 
these interesting partnerships and overlaps could be extremely beneficial in the long run. Whether you support people having a beer or wine or or whiskey in space or not, I think this is a good thing that all these companies and groups are looking at this and investing money. There's not too much difference, is there, between making alcohol and making rocket fuel? In fact, sometimes they're the same thing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is this there a lot of similarities, and so I think I think this is a very could be a very interesting area. And if we can think of other areas, not just alcohol, but others that you know might be able to find interesting uh, potential markets in space, whether it be just in orbit, the moon, or Mars, or elsewhere. Whereas you have these overlapping capabilities, I think this is when things really get exciting when innovations happen. These innovations can go in directions that we never thought of at the beginning, but as they start thinking about them, start you know, start spending the money doing the experiments, they'll often see some exciting things happen. Realize, oh my goodness, you can also utilize this technology, this capability for this or that on Earth and benefit benefit humanity. Well, it it sounds like a really fascinating read. It it it's a classic example of pulling on a little thread and thinking there's not much there, and then suddenly realizing, oh, there's a there's a whole heap of things here, and and, oh. and yeah, you've yeah, that's absolutely awesome. So where where can uh, our, our listeners find your book? When's it out? And it is now currently out. It's still taking a little while to get all to the to all the online book distributors. Uh, McFarland Publications pu- published it. So they can go there. But if they go to Amazon, it should be Amazon. I haven't checked Amazon UK yet, but uh, it should be available. I know there's been a little time period where it's been slow getting, you know, like the Amazon US ran out of them. So now there's available, but it's like saying a month to get it in the mail. But there are a number of options. If you search it, alcohol and space uh, under my name, you'll be able to find a number of places where it's available. And I know McFarland Publishers also has a UK office or a distributor they have there, which uh, should be able to make sure it um, gets to um, orders are placed or (laughs) fulfilled fairly quickly in the UK, I believe, as well. So, what about what about uh, websites and other things with the with, with all your other work that you're associated with? Well, for Explore Mars, they can go to exploremars.org. Uh, we will be launching a new website within the next one to two weeks. So, if people go to it um, now, um, you'll see the old website, which is fine, but it's a bit clunky. But a new one will be launched shortly, as well as we're announcing our next 2020 Humans to Mars Summit, our next, our 2020 Humans to Mars Summit. Um, We haven't officially launched that website yet either. So a lot of things will be announced soon. But if they just go to um, exploremars.org, they can find out more about Explore Mars. Well, thank you very much for for coming on and talking. I, I I am definitely buying a copy of that book. I think it's uh, it's a really fascinating subject. We've 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 tried to cover it on uh, the podcast in uh, a couple of times, but it sounds like you've done. <laughs> sounds like you've managed to find a really good uh, story to tell as well. Which yeah, is, and just which kind of a, yeah, a last statement for me. And this is where you mentioned yeah, there was actually ended up being a lot there. And, you know, from going from a joke to realizing, oh, my goodness, there is a book's worth here. So but basically, I figured I was interested in the topic, but also I might as well be the first one. <laughs> so. <laughs> 
Well, you should. Uh, you should. Your next book, you should tackle the the even harder one. Then you should try and tackle the uh, sex in space. Well, I wouldn't be the first one there, though. There have been a couple sex and books. Spa- uh, sex and book. Yeah, I can't quite speak. <laughs> sex in space books. <laughs> um, but it's 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 actually. I think it would be timely, though. I don't think I'll be writing that one. But you're not the first one to mention that. It has crossed my mind, but I, I'm thinking about a, bu- a couple other concepts at the moment. So. Yeah, well, I was I was thinking between, uh, Artemis is sending a man and a woman to the moon. They could definitely uh, get some more interest if they were to if they were to take that concept just a little step further. Yes. <laughs> so uh, thank you very thank you very much again for, for for coming on, and we'll put all your links on the usual show note uh, blog. I, I, I really look forward to uh, reading the book. Well, great. Well, thanks for having me on. Uh, Absolutely my pleasure. All right. Have a good evening. The Interplanetary Podcast is alive! There we go. Booze in space. Well, that was... That's genius. Loved all of that. And definitely, definitely going to order the book. I think you should too. Yes. Yes, indeed. Jamie, if people have liked the show, what, what, what should they do? It's easy. Head down to www.interplanetary.org.uk. Yes, I said it. .org.uk. There you will find a merch store. You will find a link to become one of our patrons, the gods of Earth. Uh, you will find links to our social media. Yes, we're on Instagram. Grandma. Get it, Matt? Grandma. <laughs> Ma? Oh yes, I like it. Instagram. Yeah. So Ma. give us a give us a follow. Get get in touch. We love to hear from you. And uh have a good weekend. What are you up to, Matt? Right now I'm sitting in the driving seat of my car, and the moment that you hang up, I'm going to turn the ignition and drive home. You are a absolute player. I love it. Yeah. What about yourself, Jamie? I bet, I bet you're the kind of guy that's got a walnut dashboard, aren't you? Big time. Big time, Jamie. <laughs> you know it. <laughs> My car smells of rich mahogany. Um, I'm I'm moving this weekend, Matthew, so my life is a living hell. But don't worry, because soon I'll be in my new house and you can come round and I'll cook you a space-themed dinner. What would you like? Vodka and spaghetti. <laughs> Absolutely, oh, and some and some uh, dehydrated ice cream. What more is there? There is nothing more. Literally nothing more. Bye, bye, Spudcats. Bye, everyone. See you soon. Bye. See you soon. Bye. bye.